here to speak because I had a dream about, I don't know, probably a month ago, three weeks ago, I had a dream, and it's one of those dreams where you know that it's the Lord. And I woke up from this dream, and look, I am not a morning person, so it takes a lot to get me out of bed. <laughs> um, I think about like one, this is probably the only time this year that I've gotten out of bed just without my child waking me up. But I had a dream, and at 5.30 I woke up from this dream, and I knew that it was the Lord. I knew that God had spoken. I knew that God had a word for this church. And so I got up. I went straight to my kitchen and began to read the word and to study what I felt like this dream was saying so that I could communicate it to this church. And so I'm not just here <laughs> because I wanted to speak because I'm missing it, which I am, but I'm here because I really feel like the Lord has a word for us. I feel like he's going to call some of us to be more powerful people today. And in this dream, I'm just going to tell you it, and it's a little weird. God speaks to me kind of weird. So um, in this dream, I was sitting at a table with a group of people, and it's very vivid. I mean, I know everyone at the table. And someone began to question our church. And someone began to say that there's rumors that our church is promiscuous and we're edgy. And so I began to ask why. Well, why do you say that? Why do people think that in this dream? And the person began to explain because you talk about sex from the pulpit. Because you've talked about homosexuality from the pulpit. Because you have books in your library that are controversial, that are hard topics. And then I began to respond and say, okay, I can understand that. But what in our life, what in the life of our church is promiscuous or edgy? And these are weird words, but these are the words that were used. And the person couldn't respond. And I, I said back, and this wasn't a debate, it wasn't a fight. It was a conversation, and I began to say back, well, it's interesting that you should use those words because the life of me and TD, I feel like, is anything but promiscuous and edgy. And I began to explain how TD, I was TD's first kiss. <laughs> Both of us were virgins when we got married. Both of us have lived lives that I feel like are pretty set apart. So to me, we're anything <laughs> but promiscuous. We could be a lot of things, but we aren't that. And so I began to talk about this and began to talk about how what I see as a church that would be promiscuous or edgy, is not a church where hard conversations is had. It's a church where maybe I walk in and the congregation of people who say they're believers in Christ are all sleeping around, where people are actually living promiscuous lives, where there's lust in the hearts of the people, where the people are living sinful lives yet saying they are Christians. Do you see what was happening in this dream was a debate, what was on trial was our talk and our conversations versus the reality of our hearts and our actions. One person was saying, no, 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 what you do on Sunday, what you communicate, that's all I care about. Just talk pretty, look pretty, say pretty things. And I was saying, no, we can go there. We can have those conversations. What I care about is, is the life of our church healthy and righteous and whole, because we can live godly lives and have difficult conversations. What was on trial was open conversations versus righteousness of the heart. You see, Jesus, he went there in conversations. If you've read your Bible, you know Jesus waded into some iffy waters. Jesus went to the women who were outcasts, who were not seen who were scandalous people, and he sat down right beside them. He made a scene. 
Jesus went there in controversial topics. He went there with those people of that day that were not what the church looked like. But you know what? Jesus went there with a righteous life. Jesus walked into the dark because he was light. T.D. said it earlier in our worship when he talked about how when Jesus spoke, light literally came onto this earth because of his words. But many times we think it's just because his words. No, he was able to speak light because he was light. Jesus went there, but his character was perfect. And you see, the church, we've gotten it confused. When we begin to simply measure the words and not the character. We'll be pretty on Sunday, but I don't care what you look like Monday through Saturday. Or we judge on how pretty the tree is, but we disregard the fruit of that tree. The outward and not the inward, by the facade and not the facts. By how someone can jump on a Sunday. But we know their life Monday through Saturday looks nothing like that. How good we can dress and talk, but not what our homes are like behind closed doors. As long as we have a buttoned-up shirt, who cares what's underneath, right? As long as we look good, clean, and holy, as long as we say the right things, we don't go there on the pulpit, then that equals good. We've gotten confused because we know this God looks at the heart. He's not fooled by PC sermons or empty words. He's not fooled up by our buttoned-up shirts and our pretty dresses. In Matthew 15, 8, it says this, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, we know this. We know that words fall flat. Words really don't carry a lot of meaning. Look, you can honor God with your lips. I could preach the prettiest sermon, but not have a pretty life. And there's a big difference. You could come to church on Sunday and say all the right things, all the religious gar- jargon, all the smooth talk, and have a very ugly heart. But Jesus sees the heart. And I would argue that when we live righteous lives, set apart lives, holy lives, that's when we become powerful in controversial spaces. That's when, like Jesus, we can walk into those topics, those off-limit places, because we know that we have authority and power because we are walking in as light into the darkness. We can be salt of the earth, light and darkness. In James 1.21 through 25, it says this, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed for what they do. You see, we can sit in church every single Sunday. I could preach every single Sunday. I could know the words of Scripture And be like a person looked in the mirror and forgot what they looked like because I'm not doing any of it. Have you ever been around those people, the church goers that are just a bunch of hot air and you know it? (laughs) Like you're like, man, you're saying all the right things, but like 
I know your kids. <laughs> like, I, I know what you did this week. The words fall flat, right? Better yet, have you ever been called out by someone? We have. <laughs> called out by someone who's saying all the scriptures to use to call you out. But you're like, wait, have you forgotten what you look like? <laughs> have you forgotten the chaos in your own life? Have you gotten the sin and the addiction that's prevalent in your life? You're saying all the right religious jargon, but have you forgotten what you look like? And 1 John 3.18 says this, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Saying, let's just not talk. <laughs> let's like do it. Your life speaks, and we aren't fooling others. The church, we love to talk. But let me tell you this your life walks into a room before you do. Your life, all of it, <laughs> the righteousness, the things God has done in your life, the things God has changed in your life, the things you now stand for, all of that walks into a room before you do, before you start talking. Our life carries weight. Paul writes this, and I love this. He writes this to the church in 2 Corinthians. And he's, he's bragging about this church, and he says, If I wrote any more on this relief offering for the poor Christians, I'd be repeating myself. I know that you're on board and ready to go. He's saying, man, I know that you're generous. I've been bragging about you all through Macedonia province, telling them, man, Achaia province has been ready to go on this since last year. Man, your enthusiasm by now has spread to most of them. He's saying, man, I'm telling everyone how awesome you are. But then he says, now I'm sending the brothers to make sure you're ready, as I said you would be. So my bragging won't turn out to just be hot air. If some Macedonians and I happened to drop in on you and found you weren't prepared, We'd all be pretty red-faced, you and us, for acting so sure of ourselves. So to make sure there will be no slip-up, I've recruited these brothers as an advanced team to get you and your promised offering all ready before I get there. I love this because Paul's like, I've done this long enough to know Christians are full of hot air. So let me just say, I've been bragging about you. I believe you, but I'm sending some people in to make sure we're not all embarrassed when I come to collect the money and there's no money. I'm going to send some people in. <laughs> To make sure that we're not all red-faced when time for collection comes. Because you see, Paul knew, you can say whatever you want. I can believe it. I can brag about you. But it still could not be true. Are we full of hot air? Really, are we? If spies came into my home to see if what I'm saying is actually true, what would they find? Would they find the peace that we speak of, the hope that we speak of, the love that we speak of in our conversations, in our thoughts, in our jobs? Look, pretty sermons and pretty church is one thing. Pretty life is another. Paul's like, hey, you say you're generous. Well, I'll be coming to get that money, <laughs> right? You say you're generous. We're coming to collect. You say you have a righteous life. Well, I'm dropping in to see that right living, to see it in action. Man, our words as Christians should be action-packed. 
We are not a name it, claim it people. We are a people who when we speak, we have actions behind the words that we say. There's follow-up. Man, there was a season of my life where I remember where I was really understanding God's character and learning who he was. And I was really scared to pray certain prayers because I knew (laughs) that my words are not empty. And if I pray for this, God's going to be checking up and checking in and asking things of me. (laughs) If I pray for more peace, he's going to require things in my life that cultivate peace. (laughs) He's going to require me turning the other cheek when there's drama. He's going to require me shutting my mouth. He's going to require me to take actions that actually bring about peace. You see, we don't get to just say, I want peace, Lord. Wait, why didn't you give it to me? I remember when I dated my ex-boyfriend. God, please take the emotions away. Please take the emotions away. For years I prayed this because I knew I wasn't supposed to be dating him. And I'm like, why won't God just take the emotions away? Because God required something of me. I had to make the difficult choices, walk through the heartbreak, walk through the realities of what my choices had led me to, to get healing. Some of us believe if we only speak it, then it's true of us. And we ignore the work behind the words. Look, we know this, right? I can't just speak skinny. I can't just be like, I'm I'm putting it out there into the universe. God, I believe you. I'm going to be skinny. One, because I'm five months pregnant, so skinny's not in the books for me, right? But get this, many of us, though, we're pregnant, and we just want to say, God, I want to be skinny. And God's like, that's not what I have for you. I want you to produce life, and that takes a process. So walk it out for nine months. Walk it out. But many of us, we just want to speak skinny. Or many of us, we want to speak skinny, but we don't want to work out and eat healthy. I mean, I don't want to do that, right? But we know this is silly. We know this is silly, but we do this all the time. I'm struggling with depression and anxiety. But God, I'm just going to claim freedom. But I'm not going to get counseling. I'm not going to go to a doctor. I'm not going to see what's going on with my brain. I'm not going to talk to people. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm going to keep it to myself. But God, I want freedom. You see, we do this. (laughs) We know we can't speak skinny. But we can speak everything else. God, I need help in this area. Look, can God heal in a moment? Yes. Does God heal? Yes. But often, God wants us to walk through a process to get the healing that he needs and wants for us. God often heals through the journey. God also cares about the growth, the story, the testimony, the example of our lives. I told someone the other day who was really suffering, man, suffering in this moment, this is the greatest leadership you'll ever have because people are watching you. She was like, well, I need to be back preaching. She's a pastor. She's like, I need to be back in the pulpit. I'm like, no, no, no. You suffering well is maybe the greatest leadership you will ever have. Look, Jesus cares about the journey that we walk through because people are watching He cares about us more than he cares about overnight success. Look, if I just speak generosity from a pulpit, preach sermons on generosity, you know I'm going to have to have money to be able to be generous. 
That requires money. It requires an ability to actually be generous. There's work involved. And I love this because we see here Paul saying, man, I know you're generous. Well, I'm sending people to check up on you because he also knew you can't be generous without any cash flow, right? These, these people had to be working in their Mondays through their Saturdays. They had to be earning a living. They had to have money so that when they wanted to be generous, they could be. When I went through some of the worst of my, like, life, when I was diagnosed with a panic disorder, when there was all kind of mental health stuff I'd never walked through in my life, I couldn't just stand up here and tell everyone about it, or I would still be here telling you about my open wound, right? No, I had to go to counseling. I had to go to a doctor. I had to get help. Me and TD every Tuesday had to drive to Tulsa and sit there for hours sobbing. I had to change doctors. I had to wear heart monitors. I had to go through years of process to experience the healing to where I can now, when people ask, I'm like, oh, I've got all the tools. I've got the tools to help you. And when these people, when Paul sent people to say, do you have the cash? Did they have the cash? Could they have been working for the cash? Did they have the need, what they could provide for this? Man, some of us, we have so many tools and resources because we've walked it out in our life. And when people come to us, We've done the work. When people come to collect money, are we red-faced and embarrassed because we don't have what they need? Or have we done the work? Because, look, people are going to come to you. They're going to come to me as a believer, expecting you to have the tools you say you have. Okay, well, you Christians say that you have peace beyond understanding. So right now I'm in the midst of turmoil in my life. Can you offer me that peace? You know what? You're going to have to have worked for that peace through your life to be able to speak into that situation with power and authority. Oh, you say you have hope in the midst of hopeless situations. Can you give that? Can you help me get that? Do we have it? Do we know it? Have we acquired that tool in our tool belt? When the harsh world comes to you, when someone that has beat you up, has stabbed you in the back, has hurt you repeatedly, comes to you and says, hey, can you offer me that sacrificial love that you guys talk about? Can you do it? Because you've cultivated a love of the cross. Because you've practiced loving people that hurt you. Because you've built that muscle in your life. When the time comes and someone says, I've stabbed you time and time again, what are you going to do? Can you do it? You see, Jesus didn't avoid the hard stuff. He didn't avoid the controversial people, the controversial issues. He didn't shame people. In fact, he defended the people who were farthest away from him. We see his disciples, when they are being martyred, crying out for forgiveness for the people that martyred them. Our God and his people, they went there. But their words and their works were always saying the same thing. Jesus walked into places and spoke light because he was light. He went into the hard topics, but his words and his works always lined up. He was not just hot air. Jesus spoke love. His words, he spoke it. But he also went to the cross because love compelled him. 
He really was love, and it drove him to death. Jesus spoke healing, but he was also wounded so that he could be healed. He allowed his body to be broken and crushed. There there was a real cost of healing. Jesus spoke peace, but he went into battle zones and risked a lot to bring peace. He didn't just yell peace from heaven. He brought peace incarnate to us. Jesus was born into a violent world, and he did not retaliate with violence. His actions proclaimed the same peace he talked about. Jesus spoke about picking up your cross. We know he also picked up his cross. Jesus spoke on loving your enemy, and you know what? He loved us. Oftentimes we think, wow, Jesus loved the tax collector. No, we were the enemy. Jesus spoke of loving enemies, and he loved us. He didn't just talk about it. He came to meet his enemy. He called people to be citizens of heaven and not of earth. But his life looks like heaven, not earth. And many of us want to call people to be citizens of heaven, but we look just like they do. So like, wait, what's the difference? (laughs) He rejected sin. He lived righteous. He refused temptation. Jesus called out demons. But the demons knew his name because his life was in direct opposition to the demonic. Look, light can cast out darkness, but only light can do that. Acts 19, 13, starting verse 13, it says this. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demonically possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. You see, they were saying the church jargon. They were saying the right words. And the demon's like, who are you? There was nothing to back their words, and it meant nothing. Do the demons know your name today? Today, if this was us, and we began to pray, would some of us be overtaken? Would some of us be red-faced, running out naked? Because, oh gosh, they didn't know my name. But I said, Jesus? Look, when we began, me and TD began to speak of loving enemies, I don't think I've ever seen so many enemies come after us. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen the spiritual dynamic of literal enemies attacking. Because you know what? When you begin to speak things, there better be a backing in your life. When you begin to call out demons, you better be standing on the side of the Lord. We actually, in our last church, we were praying in the church offices over someone who was demonically like manifesting and this demonic thing started screaming and squealing and as as we were praying and casting out this demon because yes this happens and as we were doing this I'll never forget it the demon literally called out Billy Calderwood our senior pastor's name and I remember being like man the demons know his name I will follow him not because he had pretty sermons Not because he had a pretty church, but because that demon knew his name. And I want the demons to know my name. 
And when I get up here and preach, I better not just have pretty words, or I'm going to run out naked and screaming all throughout the week because it is not easy to do this. There's got to be a backing of what we say as the church. And many of us, we say all this religious speech, we say Jesus' names. There's no action behind our words, and we end up overtaken time and time and time again, and we just claim victim. When really we've been claiming things that aren't true of us. Or many of us, we live by fear. Well, I can't go in that room, or I'll be overtaken. I can't go there, I can't talk about that topic, I can't go into that dark place, because, whew, I might come out dark. But you know that's because we don't believe what we're saying. I can walk into dark places, have controversial issues, because I know that me and the Lord, we've been there. I've walked in those spaces before. The demons, they know my name. I believe that they do. Because I've developed the tools of walking in the dark. The demonic was, was not convinced by their empty words. It held no power. I remember when I was a young girl at our junior high, which look, junior, highers can be, junior highs can be creepy. It's like the church at night. Have you ever been to like a school at night? It's just equally as creepy. Anyway, but I'm scared of the dark. But anyway, I remember as a junior high girl, uh, somehow in this like bathroom, there ended up being like scratch marks all down the wall and like weird things. So all of a sudden junior highers were like, it's haunted. Our bathroom is haunted. So like every time we'd run in the bathroom, literally all of us girls would be like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And we'd go to the bathroom and run out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We'd be like, whew, we made it. Right, but that's what a lot of us do. I literally thought, if I just say Jesus, I can't be attacked because I'm like, you know, saying the right words. But we do this as Christians. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he's like, okay, go to counseling. (laughs) Okay, tell your pastor about that. Tell a friend you're struggling. Okay, be vulnerable. Get help, get healing. And we just want to say, Jesus, 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 some magical potion. So we can't be overtaken. And here we see in James 2.19, it says, you say you have faith. You believe that there is one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this. (laughs) Oh, you say the name of Jesus. Good for you. Even the demons believe Jesus is God. What's the difference? Good for you. You say Jesus. Are you really a disciple of Christ? Are you really light in the darkness? Does your life back your words? Look, these people used Jesus, and it turned on them. (laughs) They didn't cast out demons in some other name. They were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, used the third religious jargon, and it turned on them. Look, our words can hide us. We can use our words in the same way. But we can be filthy on the inside and still put on a nice dress. But that's not going to protect us. Have you done the hard work? Can you walk into battle confident, knowing that you have authority and backing in the name that you proclaim? Look, not perfect. I am far from perfect. But not buttoned up, religious. But knowing we are who we say we are. Because we're not phoning it in. We're not just saying we're Christians. We're walking it out. We're carrying our crosses. And I'm not talking about voting the right way, doing all the Christian religious stuff. I'm talking about being someone 
who when you're stabbed in the back, you don't gossip and slander. When you're hurt, you speak love and truth. The hard things, right? (laughs) The actual hard day-to-day walk of a Christian. Do we have what we need in our toolbox acquired through battle, through relationship with Jesus, to call out light and the darkness listen? So how do we use our words? Because I don't want to be a church that's just lip service. I could care less about that. I don't want to be a church of lip service. We say the right things. We come to church and we're like, I'm good. You're good. Okay, we're good. We're all good. And then we go home and do it the next Sunday, right? But how can our lips actually service us? Because words are powerful. And I think sometimes we only talk about words as if, like, they're bad. But words can be powerful for us. We can use words to actually service us. We can use life-giving words to actually cultivate life in our own lives. So I'm just going to really quickly, as we close, give four things, four ways that you c- we can use our words wisely, four ways that we can make sure we're not just hot air, that we're actually using our words to turn our lives around. And number one is this, use your words to speak truth to yourself. We love to speak truth to others. Use your words to speak truth to yourself And then listen to the words that you are saying. Matthew 12, 34 says this, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we know this. We know that what is coming out of our mouth is coming from our heart. So tell the truth. And then listen to what you're saying. I have walked away from many conversations and needed to repent because, oh my gosh, that just came out of my mouth, and now I know where my heart's at. Tell yourself the truth. If you are constantly saying what people, what the church wants you to say, if you are the Christian that's just constantly naming and claiming it and never really being honest, we begin to actually think that's a good reflection of who we are, what's going on to us. We actually become the character we're playing. We see in Revelation, it's written to a church, you say I'm rich and I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And it goes on to say, you don't even realize you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Basically, they're saying, you've actually began to believe the lie about yourself. You've said it so much that you're good, you actually don't even understand that you're not. We've got to be a people that tell ourselves the truth. Because a lie becomes believable. We can believe our own hype. We can begin to think, oh, well, I'm okay, when everyone's looking at your life and saying, it's not okay. Your kids are going away. It's not okay. But we can tell ourselves enough lies that we begin to believe it's all okay. When it's not okay, tell yourself the truth and listen to your words. And use your words to tell God the truth. Tell him the truth. Sometimes we use this religious jargon to just protect ourselves. Because if I actually tell God, I don't just speak skinny, I tell God, oh, I'm overweight, then I have to dive into why that matters to me, where my value comes from, why I have an addiction to food, why I can, you know, right? If we actually begin to tell God the truth, it requires action in our life. If we actually begin to tell God a truth that we are scared that our kid's going to hell, Instead of just pretending it doesn't exist, we're going to actually have to start doing something to get and help the child, and it's going to be painful to us because we aren't in control. (laughs) 
So it's easy to pretend because it's painful to tell the truth because actions follow the truth, right? The truth sets us free because we begin to do what it takes to get free when the truth is told. Look, when my grandpa died, I was so mad at God, so mad at God. So many people had told us that God said he was going to be healed. So many people had spoken prophetic words over this situation, and he died. And I was so mad, not just mad that he died, but mad that he would allow people to say all this crap. (laughs) Mad that he would allow everyone to say that he was going to be healed because it hurt worse when he died because of all the Christians' talk. And I was so mad, mad to a point where I was like, I don't know, God, if I will ever speak to you again. And I told him that on numerous occasions. I'm not going there with you. I'm not talking to you. And I'll never forget it. There was a day of complete mourning when I was by myself in the middle of the night. I had hives and I was crying on the couch in complete grief. And the Lord met me there. I remember feeling him wrap around my body. There is something so special when God meets you in an honest place. The honesty of your heart. The honesty of where you're at. The honesty of your pain. Look, I'm not saying walk around every Sunday and tell everyone your sin. But tell yourself the truth. Tell God the truth. And find confidential people and tell them the truth. And don't just find other addicts and tell them that you're an addict because that feels awesome, right? Because while we'll just, you know, have sorrow together, we'll just wallow in it, right? Oh, I struggle with gossip. I'm going to go tell that other gossiper because she'll get it, (laughs) right? That's what we like to do, that. No, tell a confidential person who you know will have grace, but who will call you up, who will call you to be more like Christ. Tell the truth to people to yourself and to God. I love it when we become truthful people. God meets us in our honesty. Then there becomes no more just dancing on Sundays and Monday through Saturday look like chaos. Instead, we end up bringing our honesty to the feet of Jesus Sunday through next Sunday through the next Sunday, and God begins to meet us in our honest places and bring healing, bring transformation, bring change. Let God meet you in the honest place. When we shine light on those places in our life, the darkness now doesn't have the power. Where there is light, there is light. But too many of us hide behind religious jargon. We don't even know we're keeping it all in darkness, and there will never be healing until we bring it to the light. Look, ignorance is bliss. Pretending those things in you don't exist is awesome. Man, I remember when I was really going through the depths of my anxiety and having to talk about past issues, having to talk about family stuff, having to talk about things that I used to believe about God with my counselor. I was like, dang, ignorance was bliss. I'm going to tell you, me and T.D. talk about this several times. When we lived in the bubble of L.A., we came here and realized, oh, my gosh, there are different cultures, and they don't like each other. People don't like us because we're from California, and Californians, our friends, don't understand you. Me and TD all the time, we're like, man, ignorance was bliss. Living in that bubble world was awesome, where everyone looked like us, talked like us, thought like us. Now we can't undo what we know, right? But many of us know this. 
Ignorance is bliss when you're ignorant, when you don't actually know the realities of people that think different than you, act different than you, talk different than you. When all of your friends look, think, act, post the same things you post, it's awesome. (laughs) But when we begin to tell the truth, then we become powerful. Look, I would rather be healed any day than be blissful. I'd rather know the truth than be ignorant. I'd rather be powerful than sound perfect. I'd rather be honest than red-faced when the check-in comes. And some of us are lying to ourselves, and the check-in is coming. And we're going to be found out. Number two is this. Use your words to repent. When you begin to tell the truth, you begin to tell on yourself. Acknowledge where you have fallen short and turn the other way. We all know what repentance means. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, God. It's actually taking the actions to turn the other way. We all know the saying, love the sin, hate the sinner. Or love the sin or hate the sin, right? We all know that saying. TD always loves to say it this way. Love the sinner, hate the sin in your own life. How about that? How about we stop worrying about everyone else's sin and we hate the sin in our own lives? How about we become a repentant people who use our words to tell ourselves the truth and then repent of what just came out of our heart? Use your words to wage war on your own heart. Look, we can wage war on a sinful world all day. (laughs) But use your words to wage war on your own soul to cut off the own fat in your life, to cut out the own sinful ways. Repent. Psalms 139, I love it. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious ways. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love this. Man, it's not like God fix them and they and all those people. No, God, search me. There's offensive stuff in here. Search me. Know me. Use our words to pray those prayers. Forgive me. Not calling out the sin of the world, but repenting of the sin that's in here. Use your words to tell yourself the truth, to repent. And number three, use your words to invite him in and not explain him away. Look, many of you know since moving here, I've had hospital visits and heart monitors. I've been in counseling for panic disorders. I've had surgeries because they found masses on my uterus. And one day I was driving, and it was kind of at the end of all this, and I'm like, God, what is next? Like, am I going to live to see, like, this life? You know, it was just like something after something. We've all been there, right? It's just like, man, can another thing happen? And I was driving between here and the turnpike um, to get on Tulsa. So what is that road? What is it? What is it? 412. That's the turnpike. I don't know anyway. That little road between here and that turnpike. Anyway, I was driving, and as I'm driving, you know, there's like little hills, and I come up on a hill, and as soon as I come up on the hill, and I was actually having a good day this day, and I come up on a hill, and as soon as I crest over the hill, there's a car in my lane and a semi-truck in the other lane. And it was in a split moment. I thought, this is it. I'm dying. The car went in the ditch. And literally, I went right between the semi and the car with, like, inches on both sides. And I pulled my car over, and I was, like, shaking. I was like, oh, my gosh, literally, Luca just almost lost his mom. 
I, I almost died. I almost had a head-on collision because someone was passing in a no-passing lane. And, like, all of, I was just so nerve-wracked. And the Lord said, look down. And I looked down, and there was a paper sitting there that at our previous women's conference, we had written prophetic words for people. And I didn't read most of them because I wrote most of them. <laughs> so I hadn't read any of them. I just handed them out. And there was one sitting there, and the Lord said, read it. And so I went to read it, and it was Isaiah 43, 2. As I sat there shaking on the side of the road, it said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. See, God was with me. The fire happened. The fire was happening. I had been through it, but it was a reminder that God had been with me the whole time. Look, the church, we love to explain God away. Every time I get sick, I know it. People in the church are going to be like, but God's got to heal you. And I'm like, okay, but can we talk about the fact that I'm puking? Like, one of the best I got, best advice I ever got was from Peggy. And she's like, look, when you puke, these are the things that taste the same coming up as they do going down. And I was like, thank God for Peggy, because she's acknowledging that I'm sick. Right? She's not explaining God away. She's not saying Christian jargon. She's saying, look, you're puking, but let's invite God into that puking. Let's make it a little better. Because chocolate tastes the same going down as it does going up. So you know what I did? I started eating chocolate. Right? The church, we feel this obligation when people are suffering and when there's pain to explain God away. Well, you won't be there for long, right? This too shall pass. Okay, we know that, but right now, right now it hurts like hell. Right now I'm puking. We love to explain it away. I remember in Bible college someone told me, well, you have school loans because you're just not praying hard enough. Just pray more. You know what? I prayed more, and I still had school loans. But you know what was great about school loans is that I got a bomb job right after college because I had to. Because I knew that my loans were kicking in in six months. So you know what? I actually thank God for my loans. I do because my loans helped me get it in gear and get a good job after college because I knew I couldn't just mess around. But we don't like as a church something is wrong about inviting God into that suffering. We don't need to explain him away. Look, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what? They're famous for what? Being in the fire. <laughs> Being in it. Because why? God was in it with them. We as Christians serve a suffering Messiah. I don't know where in the world the church got this idea that we aren't a suffering people. We have a theology of suffering. All the disciples who first followed Jesus were martyred. Suffering is a part of our belief. But somehow when there's suffering, when there's things we can't explain, when there's miscarriages and there's cancer and there's pain, we just want to explain it away. Let me give you a good religious smooth talk answer to explain it away and saying, saying hey, let's sit here and let's invite God into this pain. Invite him in. Romans 12, 15 says, be happy with those who ha are happy. And weep with those who are weeping. It doesn't say, man, go into that weeping situation and try to bring joy. <laughs> no, it says, go be, weep. Weep with them. Be in the pain with them. Invite God into it. We are not a people that ignore the suffering in life. Man, if we become a church that ignores the suffering in life, you know who will never be in these pews? Sick people. People that have cancer. People that are dying. 
people that have children that are walking away from the Lord, people that are suffering. They'll never be in these pews if we explain God out of suffering. It says this in the suffering God, Daniel Cummings writes this, writes this. While human nature privilege in the American dream may justify profound distaste for suffering, Calvary beckons us differently. Reconciliation with God implies further intolerance of this world and its atrocities and injustices, not shielding from their effects. Suffering binds us with God. As Jurgen Maltman writes, when we feel pain, we participate in his pain. When we grieve, we share his grief. People who believe in the God who suffers with us recognize their suffering in God and God in their suffering. Invite him in. It goes on later to say, it is strange to suppose that a life lived in avoidance of suffering may somehow reflect the hope of crucified Christ, right? I think sometimes the world's like, all these bubbly, happy Christians are annoying because that's not what my life looks like. Look, avoiding suffering does not reflect a crucified Christ very well. When you suffer, people understand a crucified Christ. This expectation portrays how Christian faith has been infiltrated thoroughly by idols of comfort and privilege. Without a developed theology of suffering, our announcement of the love of an imminent father falls hollow. As liberation theology suggests in his discussion of Job, if we do not know God, if we cannot talk of him with the orientation of suffering, why devote ourselves to him at all? Gutierrez teaches that, it is through joining Christ's suffering and the embrace he offers to the oppressed that we discover God's unmerited and intimate love. If suffering is not part of our experience as disciples of Christ, our experience of the love of the cross is incomplete. If you are suffering this morning, welcome to the cross of Jesus. Man, invite him in to those spaces. It doesn't need to be explained away. Invite him in. In the cost of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a prophetic and persecuted voice of the anti-Nazi movement, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is this up there? Yes, wait, I think it's the next one. Sorry, I'm just like plowing through these things, the poor video person, but I'm running out of time. Anyway, Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what it meant to suffer and engage with suffering. In one of his letters from his prison cell, he stated from a place of despair, only the suffering God can help. Though we are inclined when privilege allows, to follow the crucified Christ without identification with suffering, there comes a point when we are confronted by utter brokenness. And at the crossroads to the pain is, and the pain is strong lies an opportunity for greater solidarity with Jesus and deeper enjoyment of his love. As our suffering joins with his, we find there is indeed nowhere we can go from his love. Suffering is the retrofitting to any discipleship foundation, the gap between our program and practice, the gap between our good words and our actual actions. The suffering God can help. We find him at our side, mending our story with his and new, and deepening our devotion to a crucified and risen Messiah. Look, there was a fourth man in that fire with them. Invite him in to your suffering. And the next and last one is use your words for good gossip. Man, speak life of others. Many of us, look, we want to speak life. I've been there, and I'm like, man, I want to be a person that speaks life. But why in the world does gossip keep coming out? Like, I want to be a person that really speaks good of people, but why do I keep speaking bad? And you know why? It's because I haven't done the first three things. I haven't told myself the truth. I haven't repented. I haven't invited God into those spaces. But when we begin to cultivate a loving heart, you know, it flows out from our heart, loving speech. 
to speak highly of people. Be a person who gossips good. Look, we know hurt people hurt people, right? From out of a hurting heart, you're going to speak hurtful words. So get your heart healed. Focus on that. And then begin to practice good gossip. James 3, 5 says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. And we in Christians love to look at this fearfully, like, oh, I better not say anything bad. It'll start a spark. We shouldn't. But let's start good sparks. Man, what if people went around talking so highly of this person? You know what would happen? The city would begin to love this person. Who is this person? We got to meet this person. Man, make other people famous. Gossip good. Set forests on fire with good talk. The message says this in Ephesians 5. Though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, those who follow Jesus have better use for their language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly. That kind of talk doesn't fit our style. Thanksgiving is our dialect. I love this. We have a different dialect of Christian. We get to start fires ablaze because our tongue is powerful. So let's start good fires. Fires of hope and life and belief for this city. Not of doom for this city. Fires of good for people. Man, that person's awesome. That person is so great, so loving, so servant-hearted. Speak good of people. Don't just stay silent. Start good gossip. We have a different dialect. So as we close, tell yourself the truth. Use your words to repent. Use your words to invite God into those spaces and use your words for good gossip. Be powerful and don't be weak. Look, you're weak in battle when you don't have the armor. You're weak in battle when you speak purity, but you haven't laid your sexuality at the altar of Jesus. You're weak in battle when you speak generosity and you haven't put your money where your mouth is. It holds no weight. You're weak when you speak healing and you haven't walked out healing in your own life. Because everyone can see your wounds. You speak, you're weak when you speak faith, but you haven't cultivated faith in your own life. You're weak when you speak advice, but you haven't learned wisdom. You're weak when you speak the cross, but you haven't picked up yours. See, many people were trying to speak life and were dead. And are wondering, like, why, Christ, why other people don't want to be like us? Because they don't want to be corpses. Why would I want to be like you when you look just like me? You're doing the same things I do. We are walking dead, and we wonder why people don't believe life. Can you imagine if a lot of healed people walked around speaking healing? A lot of people that have actually done the work walking around speaking hope. No more lip service, but going into battle as light in darkness. So yes, we do risk it for people to go back to the dream. Yeah, we do go there in topics. Yeah, we do talk about homosexuality from the pulpit because you know what? There's people that are struggling and that's the reality of life that we are inviting God into. Yeah, we do talk about sex from the pulpit. Yes, we do go into these conversations, but we do not go in lightly. We go in as light into darkness. We go in as a people who have cultivated love. We talk about loving our enemies, but not out of a life that hasn't loved enemies. We are a powerful people. We risk it for others, but we are light in the darkness. Let's pray this morning.